Good evening. Amen. We were singing that uh, second song, I think, and I told Jessica, I love this song. And then afterwards I saw it, it was by Isaac Watson. That explains it for me. If he wrote it, I love it. Uh, Tonight we're going to start into the actual narrative of John. So you can go ahead and start turning there. Um, We finished the prologue, and so it's on to... John's account of the Jesus story. Um, and, and one thing to keep in mind as we make this transition from the poetry prologue to the narrative of the rest of the book um, is the, the purpose of John. So we've talked about it before, but John 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Right? That's John's purpose. It's pretty... Awesome for an author of scripture to give us just a one line. This is why I wrote the book, by the way. That's really cool. Um, So the entire purpose of John telling us the the story of Christ is to help us to see Jesus and to comprehend, to grasp who he really is. That's what 21 chapters of John are about. Guys, I want you to see Christ. This is who he is. I want you to grasp and comprehend who he is. And, And it's only by seeing and grasping his identity that we find life in his name, right? So, so a lot like our time in the prologue, we're going to start our time each night by looking at the text, trying to uh, understand the, the story and answer any immediate difficulties. But we don't want to stop there because we want to press on beyond that when we're in a narrative like this and ask, okay, so who is Jesus? Here's the story. It's great. How does that reveal Christ to us? What does that say about Christ and his revelation? Okay, um, And a lot of that will be through dialogue with John, because John is just filled with dialogue, so that'll be fun. Our text is John 1, 19. We're going to read through verse 34. Um, I should have also mentioned that, for the most part, we're going to be taking much bigger chunks, because it's, it's, it's hard to split up a, a, a one story into multiple sermons. So if you found John 1, 19, you'd stand in honor of God's word. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Father, come and add your blessing to the reading, studying, preaching, applying of your word. Give us focused minds to to grasp what it is that you are saying, to to see the Christ that's being revealed to us. Open our lives up to us too, Lord, so that we can see our lives in light of your word and be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, just like the other gospel accounts, John starts his out with the transition of the ministry of John the Baptist to Jesus. So there's this this transition in all four Gospels. And right from the get-go, there's conflict, right? Um, It's kind of interesting to get a glimpse of that here, that the Jewish leaders, they weren't just hostile towards Jesus. It looks like anybody that did any kind of ministry or anything in God's name that wasn't delegated and sent out by them was cause for concern, and they were going to be opposed to that. And so they expressed that hostility here towards John the Baptist. Um, they sent a delegation. We find out We find out in verse 24 it's actually a delegation of the Pharisees. Um, we're going to see a lot of these delegations throughout John coming to Jesus. And this time they've come to question John the Baptist. You'll remember that John the Baptist has a ministry of preaching and baptism. Preaching, baptism, preaching, baptism. What exactly he preached... Well, we don't have that much actual content of his sermons. Um, But Mark 1 verse 4 says he preached a baptism of repentance. Or baptism unto repentance. And here in verse 23 it says he proclaimed, Make straight the way of the Lord. Elsewhere we see John calling people to repent of sins and put off hypocrisy. And in Matthew, a really enlightening verse says, John said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, they're sort of the building blocks for John's preaching. Put them together, and we can say John was a prophet, right? Jesus calls him a prophet. He's a prophet who called God's people to repent from their sins, to put off their sins, and turn towards serving God. And he did this in fulfillment of Malachi 4, as the one who prepared the way for Jesus. So, John's ministry was a preparatory ministry. It was a prophetic preparatory ministry calling people to turn away from sin and turn towards God to pave the way for Christ. God's preparing His people for His coming. He's preparing them for the coming of God and the person and work of Christ. And so He sends John ahead of time. It reminds me of um, it reminds me of the guy, I've never seen this actually on TV, but the guy who, when it's time for the President of the United States to come into the room during a banquet or some kind of event, what does he do? He calls everybody's attention. Uh, he wants everybody to stand, right? Because something honorable is getting ready to happen. He says, get ready. And he announces, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. And in comes the President. Everybody's ready. So if, if, if it's an honorable thing for the President to come into the room, it's a, if it's an occasion where we need to stand, be ready, you, you, know, you put your snotty handkerchief in your pocket and stop picking your nose and you just you, you want to be ready for this and at attention, right? Well, how much more God? Okay, God is coming. This is John's ministry. God is coming. Get ready. Prepare your hearts. Uh, do, you, do you remember in the book of Exodus when when God leads the people out of out of Egypt, one of the first things he's going to do is meet with them at the mountain. And he's, he doesn't just come and say, oh, here I am. He says, on this day, I'm going to come and meet you. And between now and then, here's what you do. You get ready. You prepare yourself. You know, not just put on your best clothes, but put off your sin. Abstain from uncleanliness. Don't do the things that lead towards uncleanliness. So, so God was saying, I'm getting ready to come. Get ready. Prepare yourself. Cleanse yourself because I'm a consuming holy fire. And, and that's exactly what John's ministry is. He knew the Messiah was coming. Obviously, God had promised this, but as a prophet, apparently, God had explicitly told him that he was coming. Um, And so, John was 
awakening people's conscience towards the, the presence of God, but more than that, he was awakening an, an eagerness and an expectation. A lot like I called you to stand just before we read the Holy Scriptures like we always do, right? Why? Because I want you to get ready. I want you to feel the weight of it. I want you to prepare yourself in your heart. Be on the lookout. And that's what John's doing. And finally, as we'll see, he completed his ministry when he learns the identity of the Messiah and he has opportunity to publicly declare and proclaim, that's him. That's on, on multiple occasions. That's him. He's the one. He's the Messiah. And, and as of that, we see John now transition out of his role as prophet. So that's John. Now let's get back to the first part of the text. Um, the Pharisees send this delegation to explicitly ask Jesus, who do you think you are? Just exactly who do you think you are, right? Of course, I honestly don't, I really don't think that they were genuinely interested. I think they already thought they knew who he was. They wanted to know who he thought he was. Is he a wacko? Is he insane? Is he crazy? Are you the Christ? If he had said yes, who knows what would have happened to him, right? I don't know. Maybe he would have been executed himself. Are you the Christ? John says, clearly, I am not. And I love how the Apostle John says it. He confessed. He did not deny. He confessed. Right? It's very redundant. Uh, he wants to be so clear here. Maybe some people say there, there might have been some people in the early times, the early church times, that thought John actually thought he was the Messiah. So maybe John's clearing that up. It's hard to say. But I love how strong the declaration is. He confessed. He didn't deny. He confessed. No, that's not me. You can think back to our sermon a couple, couple well, a month or two ago now about being honest about what we're not and who we're not, right? John confessed. So, okay, are you Elijah? Remember Elijah, First, Second Kings. Um, Elijah did not experience death like we do. You remember his protege, uh, Elisha, the, the following prophet saw him get carried away in a chariot, resembled a chariot made out of fire. He carried up into heaven. Um, that was his exit from this world. And so, there, you couple that with the fact that there's prophecies that there's going to be a return of Elijah prior to the Messiah. Put those together and you can understand why there was this really strong tradition and expectation that Elijah himself was going to kind of be reincarnate or come descend back down from heaven and, um, and prepare the way for Jesus and proclaim, proclaim the way for Jesus. So people were actually expecting Elijah himself to return. John says, make no mistake, that's not me. Okay, that's, he's not Elijah. He was born, we know who his mom was. He was actually born. He didn't come floating down from heaven in a chariot. Now, little qualification, Jesus will say later on that that's actually a misunderstanding of the prophecies of the Old Testament God wasn't saying that Elijah himself was going to return, but rather that a prophet in the role of Elijah, like Elijah. And Jesus said, that is John. So yes, he is a prophet. He is the fulfillment of those prophecies. He is fulfilling the role of Elijah, but no, he's not flesh and blood. Elijah. Okay, well then are you the prophet? You know, it says the prophet, right? Not, they're not saying, are you a prophet? They're saying, are you the prophet? Again, this was an expectation from Deuteronomy. God said, after me, God will raise up a prophet like me. And so there was this expectation that there was going to come one final big prophet, basically, and, and bring the people back to God and, and, and 
John says, that's not me. Actually, Acts tells us that's actually Jesus. We, we find out in Acts. But. So, so all that to say this. The, the people then respond, well, then who do you think, this is what they were doing all along. Well, who do you think you are then, standing out here, baptizing like this? See, they only thought those three people would be qualified to do what John is doing. If you're not that, and you're not that, and you're not that, then what are you doing? Who do you think you are? You don't have authority to be doing this. And you've got to love John's answer. I baptize with water, but somebody else is here in your midst. You don't know who he is, but I'm not worthy to loosen the strap on his sandal. It's a very vivid one-liner. I wonder if he thought about that for a while, if he was ready for that one. Uh, on the surface, you'll notice that's not much of an answer, really. Who are you to be baptizing? Well, there's somebody else here. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Doesn't seem like an answer, right? <clears throat> and maybe it's not directly, but Jesus does the same thing a lot. He avoids hostile questions by redirecting the conversation. <laughs> so maybe that's what John's doing a little bit. But I, I do think he's answering it at the same time by saying, my authority to baptize comes from the fact that the enthroned king of Israel is standing here and you don't even know who he is. Because implied in their question, when they say, who, do you, who are you then to be baptizing out here? Implied in that question is, if you're neither Messiah, Elijah, nor the prophet, then we don't recognize your authority. And we haven't given you permission to be doing this. That's what, that's what they're saying, right? We're the authorities. You're not. Who do you think you are? And so in that context, John's answer is this. Authority, you have no authority. Right? You, you have been superseded. Your authority has been trumped. It's gone. Like if a, if a captain walks up to a private and rebukes him and says, Hey, I didn't tell you to do that. What are you doing? He doesn't realize the general is standing right behind him and he actually just gave the order. Right? In the presence of the general, the captain's authority is superseded. And that's sort of what's going on here. I think that's part of why the writer John mentions that all of this took place on the other side of the Jordan. Where is that? That's just outside of Israel. Okay, it's, it's part of the rebuke on Israel and her leaders that they didn't even recognize the presence of their king. John is doing this great prophetic role just outside of Israel. It's kind of sad. Now in our day and age, because, uh, and, and, and because we're interested in seeing how this passage reveals Christ to us, we, we, we need to zero in on this what seems like a self-abasing statement from John. It almost sounds like masochism, you know, self-hating what John says here. I'm not worthy to entice somebody's sandals. What would you think about a guy who walked up to you and, and said, you know what, I'm not even worthy to tie anybody's shoes. I mean, you would just think he just hated life, hated himself, right? This guy, he, he just loves to, to be self-abasing. The, the sandal part, by the way, I think that's kind of irrelevant. I mean... They wore sandals with, to, with straps to hold them to their feet. We wear shoes. The, the, the relevant part is that they might have been even more nasty than we are today. They would have been sandals, right? If, 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 if I wear flip-flops all day, you don't want to be anywhere in the general vicinity as my feet. And feet are just nasty. They are the nastiest part of the non-private body, right? not saying your feet are. I'm, my feet are as nasty as they come, but... Um, we can all agree that as far as stench and filth, you know, the, our feet are probably the bottom of the totem pole as far as our, again, public body is concerned. 
And it's interesting then that John picks this part. He goes right there. He goes to the kind of the lowest of the low. And he, he, he says it in reference to not only the lowest part of the body, but the lowest rank in society. Who, who would have had the occupation of touching somebody else's sandals? Only the lowest housemaid, right? The servant of the house. Maybe. If, if, a, if a well-respected guest came into a well-to-do family's home, maybe the servant would assist in taking off the sandals. Um, so sort of the, the most, just uh, the lowest of the low job and, and, and act in that person's life, that's right where John goes and says, I couldn't do that. I shouldn't even do that. You know, he doesn't say I shouldn't help him take off his gloves or take off his tunic. He goes right to the filth and says, if I were to touch the strap that's touching his foot, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Now, is John making a statement about himself? Sort of. But I think it's less a statement about John and more a statement about Jesus. Isn't it? He's not just being self-deprecating. He's not just hating himself. He's not saying, I'm scum and I'm the, the lowest of low and I'm worthless and I shouldn't even touch people's shoes. It's not the point. But when I'm standing next to Jesus, when it's Jesus' foot that's strapped to that sandal, now I'm unworthy. So it's really a statement about Christ, isn't it? This is so enlightening because for us, especially in the news media, Reformed theology has been caricatured as as self-hating. You know, that we think that we're scummy, you know, worthless worms who aren't worthy of the dirt we're standing on. That's, that's how Reformed theology is represented. But that's a misrepresentation. That's not what John is saying to the deputation of Pharisees. That's not what a biblical Reformed theology teaches either. Let me, let me present you with an analogy here. If you, were to, uh, if you were to get up really close to these fluorescent bulbs right here, take the cover off that kind of sh- scatters the light, it would be very bright. If you were just to get up close to it and look at it, right? Say you were in a dark room, you slept for, for eight hours, and, and somebody turns that light on in your bedroom. It's going to be very bright. You're going to yell at them, I'm sleeping here, turn the light off. might even leave those little dark blotches in your eyes for a second. It's very bright light. But take that light fixture, get in our Grace Church uh, spaceship, let's fly, to the, fly up to the sun real quick, fly over to the sun, wherever it is right now. And let's get awfully close to the sun. All of a sudden, the brightness of this formerly bright light is now evaporated, isn't it? And in the presence of the sun, in fact, we can't even tell this light's on. In fact, we're so close that that we're consumed. Uh, We can't see anything else at all. Our our eyes are consumed by the light. Our our spaceship is probably consumed in the, the heat that the sun is emitting at this point. In other words, the light in itself put in context of an infinitely greater light. That's what's happening here. When you do that, the former light loses its significance. And that's a biblical reformed understanding of ourselves. The Bible doesn't teach that human beings are worthless, does it? Not at all. There's real value and real worth in humans created as image bearers and reflectors of the image of God. But when you set those same human beings in relation to King Jesus, suddenly you lose sight of all of your worthiness. 
you lose sight of any extraordinariness that you once possessed. So now what Paul says, I count all things as rubbish. Anything I used to count as gain, you know why I counted it as gain? Because I was off in a dark room. And I thought, oh, look at my light. This is great light. But I walked out in the light of the sun and it lost all of its significance. Amen? That's biblical. You, you, you lose sight. Not because we're worthless, but because we're overwhelmed by the light of the sun. S-O-N of God. So, if you struggle with humility, the biblical remedy for humility, the biblical remedy for pride is not to tell yourself over and over that you're a worthless, no good, wretch, scum of the earth. You don't preach this, I'm worthless, I'm stupid, to yourself. The biblical remedy for pride is rather to see Jesus for the blinding light that He is. That's the biblical remedy for pride. So walk out in the light of the sun. And just as importantly, if you struggle with, if you struggle already with thinking that you're a nothless, worthless bag of skin, you know, put here on earth for no good reason, the answer is the same, which is great. I love biblical theology. It's the exact same answer. Not look to yourselves, but look to Him. Don't be overwhelmed with yourself. Be overwhelmed with Him. Right? This is, this is where secular psychology goes wrong every time, and it's why, honestly, I would never recommend that Christians go to a secular psychologist because the answer you're always going to get is from a fundamentally wrong perspective. It's an answer of introspection. The answer will always be to look to yourself. Esteem yourself more. Self-esteem movement. You're worth it. You're valuable. Look at yourself. Look at the things you've done. Look at the places you've been. You ever watch Biggest Loser? We like, really like to watch Biggest Loser. Can't you tell? I like to watch Biggest Loser. Um, and as cool as the show is, it's filled with this this junk all the time. And they always, one by one, throughout the season, they'll take a contestant aside and just help them see the reason you're fat is because you don't see how wonderful you are. Right? You don't see. You're worth it. And by the end of the show, they go home saying, doggone, I am worth it. What is that old say, that saying from that guy, I'm worth it, and... People like me, or whatever that is. Um, that's it, right? That's 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 what they're preaching. But that's not the right remedy. That's giving a carcinogen to a cancer patient. That their, their problem is they're already looking at themselves too much. That's the problem. But the reason we struggle with either valuing ourselves too highly or valuing ourselves too lowly, it's one of the same reason. It's because we're looking to ourselves. It's because we're in the dark room, doors shut, curtains closed, no light coming in, and we turn on this little light bulb and we say, ooh, that's bright. Or, oh, it's not bright enough. That's the problem, right? What we need to do is open the curtains, step outside, step into the sunlight, and stop valuing ourselves in light of ourselves, but start valuing ourselves in light of Christ. Let me try this just one more time, practically. If you think you are big, fat, ugly, and broke, and that depresses you and consumes you and defines you, or if you think you're old and wrinkly and falling apart and that's what defines you, you're finding value in yourself. You're finding your value in yourself. Or if you think you're the best thing the world's ever seen since sliced bread, and people should pay more attention to you and stand up when you walk into the room, and that's what defines you, you're finding your value in yourself. Same thing. That's not the way of John the Baptist. It's not the way of the Apostle Paul who counts all things rubbish. It's not the way of Moses who speaks with God. 
It's not the way of the gospel. It's not the way to put on Christ. The, the, to, to put on Christ, the way of the gospel, is to get so close to the light of the Son of God that you lose sight of everything else. To get so close to the sun, you can't see anything but sunlight. And so, so the way of the gospel is actually putting off self-esteem, that is, esteeming in relation to ourselves, and to put on Christ esteem, esteeming Christ. We start asking ourselves, who is Jesus, and who are we in Jesus? Then fat, no good, ugly, whatever, that's never going to define us. The God-Son lived and died for us. That's what defines us. And, and, and we're also not going to start thinking we're on top of the world and masters of our own domain because, again, the Godson lives and reigns and we're just servants doing our duty. See, it makes all the difference to find our identity in relation to Him. That's humility. Humility is not hating yourself. It's not thinking you have nothing good to say or nothing to contribute. But esteeming Jesus more highly than we do ourselves, esteeming Him as the glorious one, being consumed with His glory, and, and finding ourselves as part of that glorious plan. That's humility. One last thing on this, real quickly, and for me, something very practical. This, something this is meant for me is that I can say thank you if somebody says that was a good sermon. I can say thank you. I struggled with that for several years. It was a very. I, I remember the first sermon I ever preached like 12 years ago, and I was way too young to be preaching, but. Uh, I got down and everybody, there was a line because it was my first sermon. I was getting licensed to preach. So it was at my family church and everybody wanted to come by and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you preached. And, and they all said, good job, good job. And I was like, I don't know what to say to that. Isn't that weird? It's kind of awkward. Um, do I say, well, it's not really about me now, is it? <laughs> or something, you know, really, that just sounds even more prideful. So what do you say? Well, I think in light of this, it's okay. It's okay to realize that it could have been a good sermon. It could have been a great sermon. It could have been a terrible sermon. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, actually. It's okay. You don't have to. You don't have to always respond with "I'm worthless." You have, but 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 you have to. You do have to let every word come out of your mouth be saturated with the glorious light of Christ. That that He's the infinite glory, right? I don't know. Maybe you can make sense of that, but. Let's move on to verse 29. The next day, the next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Okay. Now, John sees Jesus coming, and maybe this is when Jesus was baptized by John. It's hard to say. The Apostle John doesn't specifically record that for us. But here's John's chance. This is why he came. This is why he's here. Publicly, in front of who knows how many people, the, the, the Pharisaic delegation could have still been here. This is the next day. Who knows how long they're staying. Um, John boldly declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is him, John says. This is the one I've been telling you about over and over and over. This is the Messiah I was sent to repair the way for. For a Jewish prophet to say to a group of Jews, Behold the Lamb of God, everybody right then should have understood the cross, I, I do believe. They knew Jesus, they knew John wasn't calling Jesus a gentle, fluffy little animal 
right? They understood the symbolism here. They knew he wasn't saying, oh, this is a, this innocent little sweet, quiet young man whom you should like. They, they, they get it. They know that's not what he's saying. They know he's saying, behold, the sacrifice that God himself has provided. The Lamb of God. All day long, the Jews are offering up unacceptable sacrifices to God. Lamb upon lamb. And more specifically, of course, each Passover, they are sacrificing the ceremonial lamb, gathering its blood, smearing it with the hyssop branch on the door, post of their home, so that when God sees the blood of the lamb, he, his wrath passes over the household. Right? <clears throat> so when John says, that's him. That's the lamb. This is God's lamb. He's saying God has grown weary of all of your useless hypocritical offerings so he's provided his own lamb. The true lamb. Cover yourself in his blood and that will allow the wrath of God to truly pass over you. Right? And verse thir- we read verse 32 here. Um, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remain upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Okay. It's a little bit confusing because the Apostle John says, John the Baptist saw the heavens open, the Spirit come and descend upon Jesus. Matthew and Mark say Jesus was the recipient of the vision. So, And Luke doesn't actually specify who saw it, just that it did happen. Almost sounding like everybody there saw it. So which is it? Did Jesus see it? Did John see it? Or did everybody else see it? Well, you'll never hear me, by God's grace, I hope, say that the Word of God contradicts itself. So I, I sort of take that as an assumption. So then, how can we put those pieces together? Is the way that, they're, that those three things fit together? This is an instance where, where skeptics would point and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, I think there's a really easy possibility. It could be that either John and Jesus both privately saw the same vision, it could be that they both saw at the same time. Or it could be that Luke is saying they all saw it, which would mean John saw it, Jesus saw it, and the people saw it. I don't know. There's, plenty, there's three possibilities there, and we don't have to know which one it is. But at a minimum, Jesus and John saw the heavens open. Maybe that meant clouds parting. And the Spirit, in the form of a dove, come flying down, swooping down, whatever, and come to rest, it's very important, come to rest upon Jesus. And they hear the voice of God, the Father, affirming that this is His beloved Son. That's the really interesting part, that the Holy Spirit came and remained on Him. Matthew says, rested on Him. Apparently God had told John the Baptist that the one the Spirit comes on and remains, very important, that's the Messiah. That's the Messiah. And that's important. It's important to John, so he knows who the Messiah is. It's important to us. Uh, I've been thinking about this word recently, progenitor, because we're studying, Jessica and I are interested in our ancestry all of a sudden. And if you, There's a website called Ancestry.com. You can sign up for a free trial subscription. And within an hour, I traced my lineage back to England. 1600s, when we came over. I mean, it's an amazing website. Yeah, I'm hoping for Puritans there, but I'm not sure. <clears throat> a progenitor, you probably know the word, but that, that means the, uh, 
you know, the, 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 the man to whom you trace back your lineage, sort of the, the, the place where it all starts. Of course, hopefully that would all be the same for all of us. <laughs> but they use the word more loosely, but that's a progenitor. <clears throat> and in 2006, the Bidi Anyabwile, a black, a black pastor that at that point most people had never heard of, I'd never heard of him, he was given the chance to preach at the leading conference for Reformed pastors. And I had the opportunity to go. And like most everybody else there, I wasn't expecting much. We never heard, you know, it's John Piper, John MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul, and the BD, everybody's going, the I'm your what? I'm your Bwile who? In fact, I was a little disappointed even when I saw the roster, thinking all this good stuff, and then this guy I've never even heard of. But here I am six years later, and I can remember his sermon. I can remember the entire outline first, not the words, but the outline for his whole sermon. Clear as day. A black pastor speaking to an almost entirely white group of 6,000 pastors. He clearly articulated from the Bible, you can download it online, that there are not thousands of races of men like we all suppose. There's not a black race and an Anglo-Saxon race and an Eastern European race. But then in fact there are two races of men. There is the race of Adam and there's the race of Christ. That's it. Which sort of destroys every root of racism. Racism means hatred based upon race. Right? Well, and in one sense we ought to be very racist in that we, we despise the old man in the flesh, but, but on the other hand, um, it, it, if, if everybody is part of one or the other race, and we, everybody in the other race started as part of the original race, there is no room for racism. Anyway, it's a really fantastic sermon, but prior to the coming of Jesus, there is one race, the race of Adam. Every man, woman, child is a direct descendant, Right? And as the head of that race, Adam, he's not just the progenitor and the ancestor, but he's the head. This is very important. He's the representative head of that entire race of people. So that's a biblical theological concept of headship, and that's maybe another sermon. But the fact that that Adam is the head of the race means that his life and his obedience and his disobedience are counted to the lives of his descendants. That's what it means to be the head okay, of the race. To be the, he's the representative covenantal head of the race. And so what he is becomes ours, which is very unfortunate. But when Jesus comes, God starts an entirely new race of people. Praise God. The race of people plucked out of one ancestry tree and planted into a completely different one. This is why Paul, in Romans 5, calls Jesus the second what? The second Adam. He's another come alongside Adam. He's not a descendant of Adam. He's a new progenitor. He's starting something completely over. The new Adam, a new race of human beings. And just as Adam represented the old race... Guess who represents the new? Guess who's the covenantal head of the new race of God's people? Of course, it's Christ. So so stick with me, because this is so important. The reason that matters is because just like Adam was given the chance to represent his race and obey God, so too was Jesus. When you think of the obedience and sinlessness of Jesus, don't think, well, sure, he was God. 
cakewalk, walk in the park. Of course he obeyed God. Jesus was a man. He was God. He was a man. We've talked about this. But Jesus wasn't like Superman. You know, Superman looks like one of us, I guess, in the comic books anyway. He looks like one of us. He talks like one of us. He wears clothes like we do. But inside, he's actually from another planet. He can catch speeding bullets with a bare fist. He can look through walls. And, of course, he can fly in the air and save a bus of school kids falling from the sky for some reason. That's not Jesus. It wasn't. He didn't just look like us, but inside he was really Superman. So that when Satan was tempting him, come on, Satan, you're tempting Superman, right? There's no chance here. That's not it. That's not how it was. He's a real guy, a real man. And when he rebuked Satan, and when he resisted Satan's temptations, even though he was starving, even though he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for 40 days, when he gets up early in the morning to go and pray, and he stays up late to cast out demons, and even most importantly, when he hangs on a cross with nails in his hands and tears in his eyes, he did that as a real man. He experienced that in the fullness of his humanity as if you or I had. And that's why it's so important that the Spirit of God not only came down upon him, but that it rested upon him. This is so important. It rested upon him. you see that? Listen to Matthew 12, 28. Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember that verse? It's, it's an interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus had just cast out a demon from a man who was blind and mute. And the people were ecstatic. They were like, oh my goodness, you cast out a demon. This, this guy's been blind and mute. And the Pharisees said, no, no, he's a, he's a black magic guy. He's doing this with by demonic powers. They, they accused Jesus of being a devil worshiper, basically, and casting out demons in the power of Satan. And Jesus has that classic line, well, if the kingdom's divided against itself, how can it stand? He's saying that doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's silly. But... Not if by the Spirit of Satan, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, what now? Well, then guess who's standing here? The king. Because the Spirit has come, the kingdom's here, that means I'm the king, right? Okay, that's great. But what he doesn't say is, I don't cast out demons by the power of Satan. I'm God. I do whatever I want to. I can believe this demon could cease to exist. He attributes, what does he attribute his demon casting abilities to? The of God. He casts out demons by the Spirit of God. It's really interesting, isn't it? And there's weeks and weeks worth of material here we can go through, but let me cut to the chase. As the second Adam and a true, real, full human man, Jesus was filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit to love God, to obey God, to serve God, to die in obedience to God. It's by the Spirit of God that Jesus did all of that. Okay, It was because He was filled with the Spirit and Spirit-enabled and Spirit-powered that He resisted Satan. That He said no. That He obeyed God and fulfilled the commands of God to their fullest. And why do I know that? I know that because Jesus is acting as my representative. And that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's what you're supposed to do. Right? We're not God. And so God doesn't represent us as God. He, the God represents us as the God-man. Because we, 
if God could have suffered his own wrath just as God, then there would, there's no reason for the incarnation. Right? He pours out his wrath upon Jesus the man, sustained in his deity and all that. But, boy, this is getting way too deep, didn't mean for all that. The Puritans, I recommend reading John Owen on the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the life of Jesus, because this is good stuff. Um, John says he saw the Holy Spirit not only come and touch Jesus, but he saw him come and take up residence in Jesus and remain there for the rest of his life and ministry. And so it's through the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus vicariously fulfills the role of the second Adam and the perfect head of a new human race of God's people. And here's why that matters to you. I'm almost done. I know we're running out of time. If you look back at verse 32 real quickly. Um... Actually, verse 33. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, maybe I'm the first preacher to ever deal with baptism of the Holy Spirit in about five minutes, but it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. I think charismatics have blown this verse up. In context, John is baptizing with water. Right? We're clear about that. But it's a symbol. The water is meaningless. It's a, it's, it's a simple outward expression of the repentance that God is calling these people to exercise. That's what the water is about for John. Wash away your sins. Prepare yourself for the coming of the Messiah. Come and show that by letting a prophet of God wash you in the Jordan River. God tells John, <clears throat> when you see the Messiah, that's not the kind of baptism he's going to be doing. He's not just symbolically washing with water. He's going to come and immerse and fill with the Holy Spirit of God. And in context, that same Spirit who just descended on Jesus, that's what He's going to baptize us with. Okay? The same Spirit that takes up residence in and with Jesus. And so it makes sense then that He's the one that, that, that that's what He's going to baptize us with. The Spirit just came and rested upon Him. What's He doing now? He's baptizing us in and with that Spirit. He's immersing us in that Spirit. And this is why, this is the encouraging part. Because the role of the Spirit is to direct our hearts towards obedience to God. Isn't it? It's to create afresh in our hearts love and adoration and obedience to God. So, beloved, the one and same Holy Spirit who lived in Jesus, who sustained Jesus in the wilderness, who successfully threw off every fiery dart that Satan threw at him, the same Spirit who powerfully exercised demons by the hand of Jesus, the same Spirit who sustained the love of Jesus towards God when people abandoned him, when his own friends isolated him in his hour of need and ran away. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus to be silent like a sheep before its shears when he was falsely condemned. And who gave his body strength to withstand the nails and the suffocation of hanging on the cross. That one and same Spirit now dwells in us in the same manner it dwelt in him. He has baptized us with the gift that he received from the Father. Let all God's people say, Amen. And Hallelujah. I, I didn't have time to go home after work. I was going to read you a quote by Sinclair Ferguson who has an amazing chapter about this very subject. But um, That's probably why it seemed too deep for me because Sinclair Ferguson is very, 
very deep, but um, his takeaway from this subject is if that's the Spirit of God that we have, the same Spirit that enabled Christ and empowered Christ, if that's the Spirit we've been baptized with, then at every moment in our life, at every moment in your day, the Spirit of God is in you saying, been there, done that, and did it successfully. Being tempted by Satan, been there, done that in the person of Jesus, and we want. What are you struggling with? Hebrews says he's been tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. He's, he's been there. Been there, done that. You, you look at the, so you look at the person of Jesus in his obedience as the perfect man. He fulfills the law of God to its fullest, enabled, empowered, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And he now gives us with the one and same Spirit. And he immerses us in that Spirit. We don't just get, we don't just get a dabbling of that Spirit. We are filled with that Spirit. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Isn't that encouraging? That the Spirit can walk through our day and us saying, done that, done that, done that. We got this covered, Ryan. It's okay, we got this one. It's been a hard text for me this week, but um, the, the, two, the two takeaways I want to walk away with tonight for me are know who you are in light of Christ. And whichever side of the horse I'm falling off on, the pride or the self-abasement side, I want to get back on the horse in the same way, which is to be immersed in the light of His glory. Because everything's in perspective in His glory. And number two, I want to walk away knowing that in my overwhelmment in life, I am filled with a Spirit who has been there and experienced it and has walked through that successfully. This isn't a, nothing's going to come up this week in my life. The Spirit of God cannot enable me to obey the Lord and perfectly please Him. Right? He's able to do that. My sin is the only thing that's going to stand in the way of that. That's it. There's, there's nothing, there's no possibility, there's no outcome, whether it's a bus that smacks into me when I walk out of here, or a cancer diagnosis, or, God forbid, the loss of a child. There's nothing possible this week that can happen to me that the Spirit of God cannot enable me to please the Father in light of that in response to that. And that's very encouraging to me. I hope it is to you too. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we love you. We are grateful to to be immersed in the same Spirit, Lord, in your Spirit. What a gift you have given us. God, work in us this week to trust that you are able to lead us in the way of obedience, Lord, to create in us the life that you require, to work in us as we work out our salvation, to work that in us, Lord, to do and to work for your good pleasure. God, help us to put off our sin this week and help us to take great confidence in what you are able to do in us. And Lord, especially, most importantly, help us to be overwhelmed by the light of the glory of Christ this week. Help us to, in a healthy sense, lose sight of the light that we are emitting because we are absorbed from the light that you are emitting. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.